0: Now in Ketchikan, we have a lot of boats and ships and things that pass through here and come, and out of our uh, parsonage window, we like to look at the different yachts and uh, fishing boats and try and figure out what some things are, National Geographic boats. We have all these different boats and ships. As we mentioned, our friend uh, Clay is on a tug right now, uh, making a living on that kind of boat. I've never been on a tugboat, never been on a cruise ship. I did spend a couple of weeks when i was in the service on an aircraft carrier and that's i tell people that's all the cruising i ever wanted to do was on that big ship but imagine for a moment that you're a sailor and you get assigned to a ship now maybe you take a job there uh fishing or maybe you're in the in the navy whatever you get assigned to this ship and you get on the ship and this is what you find You go down in the engine room, and there's two guys that are over the engine room, and they're always bickering and fighting over how the engine should be run. One guy says, well, this is how we did it on my last ship. And the other guy says, well, this is how they do it on my buddy's ship. But neither one of them are looking at the manual, looking at how the engineers intended for the engine to go. So you go up on deck because you've had enough of that grumbling and arguing. You get up there, and you find the deck is just a wreck. Right? There's lines everywhere, they're, they're not done right, there's trash, no one's swept or mopped or cleaned it up for a long time, and so you, you ask the boatswain about it, you say, what is the world going on with this deck? And he says, ah, what difference does it make? We're going to get to the destination either way, why do I need to spend all the time working on these lines? You walk by the training safety officer and you ask him when, hey, when are we going to have some safety training around here? And he says, we don't need to waste time on that, everybody already knows what to do. It's not that big a deal and they've done it before everyone remembers and then you get up to the wheelhouse and the captain and the first mate and the officers they all have these egos and they they want to know they want to be the main guy and they want to be the guy that knows how to do things and how this ship should sail and they fight and argue all the time who would want to sail would you want to sign up or be assigned to that ship well probably not right what's going to happen the first time that ship gets into rough water and everybody has to work together? And yet, if you were to change a few nouns, that scenario could describe many American local churches. We don't want to do things according to the Scriptures. We want to do it how we did at our last church or how we read about it at some church on the Internet. Someone says, well, we don't need to go over that tired old doctrine. Everyone knows it. Someone says, I don't need to pursue holiness. I mean, I've asked Jesus into my heart. I'm saved. I'm going to get there either way. Why do I need to worry about how much I cuss or how truthful I am? Friends, this morning, I ask you, are you the kind of church member that the Bible says you should be? Do you come here to serve or do you come here to be served? Are you humble, teachable, an example Or are you divisive, selfish, and arrogant, prideful? Because as a church, we are bound together in our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to see in the passage this morning that we are called to obedience. We are called to unity. We are called to be an example to the unbelieving world. We are called to doctrinal purity, and we are called to be of one mind. And so if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2. The verses we're going to be looking at today are verses 12 through 18, but so that we understand the context of what Paul's saying, we're actually going to start in verse 5. We're going to start in verse 5. Starting in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian church under inspiration of the Holy Spirit Adopt the same attitude. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you to both will and to work according to His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or, and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked, perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, By holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would illuminate it to us this morning. God, give us eyes to see and to understand your timeless truth from your perfect scriptures. God, if anything unfaithful or unthoughtful or or just unhelpful would come from my mouth, God, I pray it would fall away from these people's ears. And that only your truth from your word, which you intend for your people to know and to follow and to live, would remain in their hearts. God, glorify yourself this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've been going through the book of Philippians, and we know that Paul is writing this letter to promote gospel-centered unity for the sake of advancing the gospel. That's the most succinct way we can talk about the main theme of this this book, is that it is gospel-centered unity for the sake of advancing the gospel. Last week we read, and we, we read it this morning, but last week we unpacked it more, that we should adopt the same attitude as Christ. Christ is Fully God, truly God, eternally God. He is no beginning and no end, and and yet He humbled Himself to become man for our sake, not because He needed anything, but so that we might be in right relationship with God. So if God can become man, we must be humble. If Christ can take your sin on Himself in full obedience, we must put others before self. And we saw in this passage last week, the gospel, that, that, that Jesus Christ, the, the, the Son of God, who is truly God and truly man, the truly God came to earth, took on himself man, and lived a holy and righteous life. We see this in Luke, where he would be born sinless and without sin. And we see in Matthew that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. Still fully God, fully man, he walked a perfect life, was crucified for our sins, for the sins of those whom the Father would draw. And he ascended to the Father's right hand after walking out of the tomb three days later. And we saw all that. And friend, if you have never believed that, it's essential that you do, that you would turn and trust in Christ. But for those of us who have, how do we live? Well, Paul starts the passage today with, therefore. You know, it's the old, it's kind of cheesy Bible reading um, a statement, but when you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? And what's this one there for? Well, it's all of that stuff. Paul says, because Christ humbled himself, because he was obedient, because he was humble, he was unselfish, therefore, you do the same thing. We are called to obedience that echoes Christ's obedience, which is the first thing we see. Look at verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, when I read commentaries on this passage, I got a few different answers. Some people dive right into the theological. Uh, Stuff here of, of, of all right, all right, we are to obediently strive to in our sanctification, but all while knowing that God is the one who is working in us, and, and they dive right into that, and I think that's true and that's right, that's not unfaithful. But I found one commentator's argument very compelling, and when he says we we jump past when we do that, the the fact that Paul is talking to the entire church. This passage. It's not merely about our personal sanctification. Paul is exhorting an entire body of believers. Just as you have always obeyed. Just as you as a church obeyed when I was there. Keep doing that. Keep obeying. Keep it up. Y'all, right? Like It's not the you there is plural. Y'all obey. Y'all work out your salvation. And he says, don't just do it when I'm around. Like the the kid in the class, that was me when I was in high school that did what he was supposed to when the teacher was in the room, right? And then the teacher left and you start goofing off. Paul says, don't goof off when I'm away. Obey just like if I was there. And this is the second time he said it, right? We saw this in chapter 1, verse 27. As citizens of heaven, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, or am absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And here he says, just as you have always obeyed in my presence, do it even more in my absence. He calls the church, hey guys, be obedient. Be obedient to the gospel tradition, even when no one's looking. Stay true, always, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we think about this statement, we have to ask, what does Paul mean when he uses the word salvation? Right? Does, does he mean, is Paul talking about that moment in which the Holy Spirit applies the atoning work of Christ to our lives? That's the, what we generally mean. We say, well, I was saved at this date. Is that what Paul means in this verse? Well, Thilman, who is a commentator, argues that while Paul sometimes uses salvation in that past sense, like we often use it. He most often uses it in a futuristic sense. So in other words, Paul says that all those who have been justified will one day be saved. Paul often speaks of our salvation in a future sense, in a judgment day sense. We see this in Romans 5:9 where he says, "Since we have now been justified, by Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, I don't think that Paul is saying anything different than what we believe, that we were saved in a past sense if you're here and you're a Christian, but the way he's using it here in this passage is in a future sense. You have been saved, and you are being saved, and you will be saved. And by Paul's statement here in Philippians, he is calling us to work out our salvation. He is calling us to live lives that are worthy of this calling, of this justification we have received through Christ. We are to strive to live holy lives right now. Paul's words echo Peter's words when he says this, "'Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble.'" And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter, verses 10 and 11. We are to put forth effort in our Christian life to work out our salvation and to confirm our calling. As one commentator writes, It is one thing to hang a sign in your house that says Christ is head over this house. It is quite another to prove that he is head of this house by obediently following him. Friends, it is one thing for us to say, God, we forgive our debtors. It is quite another to actually forgive them. We are called to work out our salvation. All the while, remembering that God is continually at work in the life of the church according to His plan. We see that where it says, For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to His good purpose. So we're called to confirm our election, to make it sure, to work out our salvation, all while knowing that the power to do that does not originate in us. Someone used the illustration of it's like a toaster. The toaster may be making the toast, but it only does so because it's plugged into the power source. We can only work out our salvation because God chose sovereignly to work in us. And Jesus says the same thing when he says a branch does not bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in Christ. John 15 4. So God is at work in and through us and through that we are to do that which honors him most and to live obedient lifestyles, to confirm our calling through faithful obedience. God is at work in his people for his purpose. Therefore, therefore, We should be unified. The second thing we see is that we are called to unity. Look at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Think about that in the local church. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, without complaining and without bickering. We are called to walk worthy and stop complaining and arguing. One scholar believes that this phrase is intended to echo Israel's grumbling and arguing when they wandered in the desert. Now, I know from reading the scriptures that it's there, but I can't help but think about my kids watching Veggie Tales, right? Have you ever watched those, like Josh and the Giant Pickle? No, not that one. The, the one where they go to the wall, right? And they're arguing back and forth about whether they should go back to Egypt. You know, at least we had onion soup. And they, one of them says, but we were in slavery. Remember, remember that scene? If you haven't seen VeggieTales, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> They were complaining, right? They're out in the wilderness and they're complaining and they're thinking about going back to Egypt and they complained about Moses. They complained about the leaders. They argued about this. They followed foreign gods and they did all of these things. And Paul's calling on the church to learn from their spiritual ancestors. Friends, trust God. Be unified. Do everything without arguing and complaining we are not to presume upon god's grace but we are called to walk worthy with fear and trembling before a holy god do you show the fear of god when you grumble about your fellow church member what does god see in your heart friends when you talk about your elders Do you have a quarrelsome spirit? Do you come to church to argue and to make sure things are done your way? And You say, well, I wouldn't have to argue if they did it my way. Well, you're proving my point. Friend, if you're coming to church to get your way and you're not coming with a, a loving and unified spirit, repent. Turn from that. If you double down on that and you say, I don't care what the passage says, I want it my way, repent and believe the gospel. Be saved. Because God sees our heart and He knows the anger and the jealousy you have for that fellow church member. Yeah, but He doesn't have the same end time view as me. So what? Well, if she doesn't want to decorate for Christmas like we've always done before. Who cares? Well, He has earrings, and in my day, wasn't done. So what? And then my favorite one, uh, Pastor, the worship service wasn't to my liking, and in which I reply, well, we're not here to worship you. Friends, we are to do everything without grumbling and arguing and complaining. Paul doesn't do, do, do some things. What does he say? He says everything. Everything. Without grumbling and complaining. You say, I don't like that. Well, the Bible's talking about you. Hardhead. head? Repent. Because God sees our heart, but the world sees our conduct. The third thing we see is that we are called to be an example to an unbelieving word. Look with me at 15. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Right, we know from the scriptures, right, that the world is fallen and twisted and corrupt. We see from Genesis 3 that everything is messed up because sin entered the world. Every sickness, every deformity, even our thinking, right? Like, as one of my professors used to say, can you imagine the calculus that Adam could have done pre fall? But because of the noetic effects of sin, right? Like, our minds are, are warped and fallen because of sin. Why does murder happen? Sin. Why does adultery happen? Sin. Why does sickness happen? Sin. And that is the world that we live in. Darkness marks our world. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32, For as God, His works are true, and His judgments are faithful. There is no unrighteousness in God. Just and holy is the Lord. But all those who are not His children, they have sinned. They have fallen short, they are crooked, they are depraved. And if you're in Christ, those effects of the fall have begun to reverse and you have that new heart and you are growing as the Holy Spirit works in you, but we still live here right now. And rather than behaving like the crooked and the perverted generation who are not God's children... Rather than arguing, complaining, putting self before others, ignoring God's command, Paul says, be a beacon of light in all of that mess. Christians are called to shine like stars among a depraved generation. How do we shine like stars? Well, we pursue godliness. We seek to obey God's word. Instead of arguing, we live at peace and unity with true believers. Instead of complaining, we strive to serve the church. Instead of putting ourselves first, we outdo one another in showing honor. How do you get the attention of the lost world? How do you get the attention of people who are constantly stre- screaming about their triggers, their you know whatever else? How they have been done dirty? How they have needs? How they people need to serve them? They need their stuff forgiven. They need this. They need that. how do you get their attention? You serve other people. When everyone else is choosing a narrative that suits their lifestyle, friends, we are to do what God's Word says, serve others, and we are to hold firm to the Word of life. We are called also to doctrinal purity. Look at verse 16a. Paul says, You will shine like stars in a world by holding firm to the Word of life. We've talked about this one a lot right, in the last three years. As we have sought to get our our doctrine squared away and to make sure that we are firmly within the Christian faith, we have talked about doctrine a whole lot, and it doesn't go away. We still have to talk about doctrine. Because Paul calls the church to stay obedient to the once and for all delivered faith. You know, when you look at many of the institutions In America, when you think about Harvard was started to train pastors, and there's a plaque, I've seen it, in the wall that says, we have founded this institution so that our pastors will be learned and and know about theology. And within a generation, they had gone liberal, and Yale had to be founded. And then within a generation, Yale goes liberal, and Princeton has to be founded. And then after Princeton goes liberal, Westminster has to be founded. And you see all of these churches, I mean all of these theological institutions that go away from the scriptures, you see it in church as well. The First Baptist Church of America is not a believing church. Friends, we are to hold firm to the faith, hold firm to the word of life. As Ralph Martin says, the church is to remain firm in their adherence to the truth and hold it as tight as a torchbearer would grasp the light that he carries. And I, for one, am thankful to be in a denomination that, by and large, has done that. I was reading this week, getting ready for our upcoming church membership class, and we're going to talk about uh, Baptist (coughs) distinctives and uh, different things. And uh, I I came across this little, uh, I don't know if it's an excerpt or whatever, but it's just kind of plugged into the middle of this book. And it talks about a meeting in 1999 So the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention requested that a committee update the Baptist faith and message at the 2000 annual meeting. And the committee made its recommendation to tighten the language regarding the Bible. Over the previous few decades, a small but vocal group had inserted itself in the SBC life. They argued that the Bible contained errors. The committee wanted to make clear that Southern Baptists believe the Bible is fully inspired and without error. Anthony Sizemore, a Texas pastor, objected to the language proposed and proposed a return to the earlier, less precise language, and he explained that while the Bible is true and trustworthy, it is ultimately just a book. He said there was an audible gasp in the room. Al Mohler responded in favor of the language that the committee recommended, and this issue would define who Southern Baptists were, he argued. A period of debate followed. Was the Bible just a book, or is it the Word of God? The decision. The return to the less precise language was soundly defeated, and nearly 95% of the tens of thousands of people gathered stood to affirm their committee's report. Southern Baptists made it clear. The Bible is the foundation of all we do. It is what we believe. Friends, we must hold to the Word of life, committed to it. The SBC was unified that day, as we must be unified in our beliefs. Hold firm together because we are called to a corporate mindset. Look with me at 16 through 18. By holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. In the same way you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul gives us a somber picture of unity, right? Like first he talks about like running and labor, we see that, but then he talks about his being poured out as a drink offering. He talks about how he will be executed for the faith. He will be poured out. That In sacrificial terms, this foretells a bloody and a violent death. And and Paul has already said the Philippians are joining him in that struggle. Just as he struggles, they struggle as well. They are joined together. They are united in the same struggle. Look at the words that you see here. You see sacrifice, you see steadfast labor, you see joy, you see unity. These are all things, friends, that should mark us as a local church. We are called to be unified together, striving together, regardless of our circumstances. We are called to be unified regardless of our circumstances. Notice the difficult nature of the words here: run, labor, poured out, sacrificial service. And yet Paul says be unified. He doesn't say be unified just when everything is easy. He doesn't say be unified when there are no hardships around, for now you can battle and fight and hate each other, but you know, when things get easier, then be unified. No, he says now, if anything, the turmoil calls for greater unity. The ship Going through the storm needs greater unity in the engine room and on the deck and in the wheelhouse. Paul's joy points to this corporate unity, this importance of the church to be unified where divisions are canceled. And he says, you too should be joyful. So how should we live as we think about this? I'm going to give you two broad applications. And then we're going to talk about how those could be lived out more specifically. But too broad, right? One, we must work against disunity. Two, we must strive for personal holiness. Work against disunity. Strive for personal holiness. First, church, commit yourself to working against disunity in this local church. Paul has been clear from the start of this letter, be unified. He talks about his partnership with the Philippians, he says to consider others more important than self. Paul tells the church to look to others' interests. They have the same indwelling spirit. They have the same blood of Christ. They should have the same servant-minded attitude. Church, we must guard against disunity. So what are some practical ways we can do that? Well, one, we can guard against disunity By building relationships with someone in the church whom you do not know. Or someone from the church whom you've had a disagreement. Or someone from the church who annoys you. I know some of you have people that annoy you because you tell me. And I think I'm the number one culprit. Go grab coffee with them. Go grab lunch with them. Go for a hike. Spend time with one another. We are to be united Friends, Jason Asher told me before he left, and a lot of you, if you've never met Jason Asher, he was a medical professional about my age. He was here with his family, uh, Ashley and Crosby and Murphy, their, their kids. And he told me one of the things he loved the most about our church is because of our size, that he was forced to spend time with who, people with whom he would normally not He said in Kansas City, he was among other professionals about his age, people in the same stage of life, in the same station of life. And he said, and then he came to Ketchikan, and you are in a church and you are committed to people whom he would never run into in Kansas City. And he praised God for that. He said he loved that he had to go eat with this guy and that he got to go eat with this guy and that he got to hang out with this guy. And he said, when I move out to Kansas City, I'm going to miss part of that. What a wonderful picture of the gospel. That it unites us. That we get to spend time with people who aren't like us. Take time in the next couple weeks and invite someone whom you wouldn't normally hang out with. And if you get invited, don't say, oh, I'm the one that annoys you, right? Like, don't say that. Say, great, I get to hang out with someone I don't normally hang out with. How do we guard against disunity? We spend time together. Another way to guard against disunity is by committing to pray for fellow church members. It is hard to dislike someone that you are actively praying for, right? Like it is just, it is really hard for you to hate somebody if you are praying that the Lord would have his perfect way in their life. Praying for one another binds our hearts together. You want a sincere Christian fellowship? Start praying for one another rather than grumbling. Next, guard against disunity by committing to proclaim truth and love. It is true that some people compromise on Christian doctrine. It is also true that some people just like finding something to be ticked off about. We are called to proclaim truth and love. We are called to guard the unity of this church and to hold firm to the word of faith. Not pick our favorite one. Well, I like unity more, so I'm going to let doctrine slip. Oh, I like holding firm to doctrine more, so I'm going to just like, run around with my theological revolver and blast people all day. Paul did not charge the church to be unified and to love one another when everything was honky-dory in the doctrine. He said, love one another now. When people are being sent to the arena to be killed, humbly be unified. When the Pope is burning people who believe in justification by faith alone, still have fellowship meals love one another. Christ said that's how we will know we are his disciples. Friends, just so you know, I am constantly leery of the guy who says, I'm not going to take a biblical stand because people don't like it. I'm leery of that guy. I'm equally leery of the guy who's always finding something to be angry about in the world. This church must both hold doctrine, without grumbling and arguing. We are called to stand out from the pagans who fight amongst each other all the time. We are not called to be the Christian Fox News. We can handle error decisively and safeguard unity and purity. And it is not healthy for anyone to stay constantly hyped up. Second, commit to striving for holiness, commit to working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul states at the beginning of this letter that God began a good work in the Philippian church and that he would bring it to completion. He also reminds the church that they are to pursue a holy lifestyle, that they are called to live lives worthy of the gospel, to walk worthy. And they are called to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling before a holy God. So, how do we do that? Well, here's a few ways. One, strive for holiness by seeking to be humble. Guys, you will never be humble if you are prideful, and I mean, you will never advance in holiness if you are prideful and arrogant. If you think you've figured it all out, you got the Christian walk mastered, and everybody else needs to look to you for the answers. You have missed the mark. Do not be surprised when they do not, and do not be surprised if you end life as an immature Christian. We will grow in holiness only when we have fear and trembling. We will not grow in holiness until we understand, as John Calvin wrote, who God is and who we are. Who God is, He is holy. Who we are, we are fallen. We will not grow in holiness until we humble ourselves under God's inerrant word and allow it to dictate our lifestyle, not going to the Bible looking for ways to affirm our lifestyle. We will not grow in holiness until we learn to put others before self, just as Christ did. Friends, holiness starts with humility. Strive for holiness by committing to obedience over Worldly success. What do I mean by that statement? Strive to do what God's word says in every area of your life. Strive to do what God's word says in every area of your life forgiveness, forgiving others. The passage we read today, obedience. Strive for that. So many times in ministry, we get wrapped up in what works. As Americans, we like quick things, we like microwaves right? We like the quick way to a million dollars. We don't like, uh, I mean, how many, when I worked in academic advising when I was in seminary, people love the really short master's degrees because they get to say they have a master's just as much as the guy who spent four years going through the classes, slowly soaking it all in. That's what we like. And in ministry, I hear guys talking about what works. Does that work? What works? Can we do this? What? We need to commit to obedience, Now, we don't want to do things that are tired and of no use, right? Like we're probably not going to revive an 8-track ministry because no one listens to 8-tracks, right? At the same time, we are called to do the things the Bible tells us to do whether they are popular or not. We are called to grow in our walk with Christ. We are called to build up the saints. We are called to make disciples. But studying the Bible is hard because I'm a slow reader. I got it. Keep going. Go at your speed, but keep going. Work. Strive for obedience. God gave us his instruction in sentence form. He did not give us a YouTube video. You say, well, they didn't have YouTube 2,000 years ago. Yeah, but we serve a sovereign God who could have brought the gospel to the world when there were YouTube videos, and he chose not to. He gave us a sentence. Study. You say, well, I only got two people in my study group. It's not worth my time. Well, praise God, you got a friend. And the two of you, study God's word for all it's worth. Keep going. One of my favorite stories is of a man named John Broadus. He taught the first preaching class at the Southern Baptist's very first seminary. It was in Louisville, Kentucky at that time, I think. It may have been the one when it was in Greenville. I don't know. But either way, it was the first year, right? So he's teaching the first class. Guess how many students he had? One. Had one student. This is a scholar, trained. People want him to pastor their churches, and he comes there to be a professor, and he has one student. His one student was blind. His one student died a couple years after that class. His one student never finished his theological degree. But you know what John us said? Every week, he prepared his lessons. He taught the class to his one blind student faithfully. He went deep. He did all those things. And that one-year study became one of the best books on preaching that we have in the English-speaking world. I have two copies of it. I bring this one because this is my favorite one because it's old. It's an old library book. You can open it up, and you can see where in the 60s and 70s people checked it out. You look on the back, you can see where people in the early 2000s, when my pastors that trained me were in seminary, when they checked it out. You think about over 150 years how many men have read this book to see how to preach the word week in and week out, me being one of them having to read it for a class. What would have happened if he said, you know what, i got one guy and he's blind. He's not even that good of health. I'm just going to kind of coast. Well, praise God he didn't. No matter how small our class is, no matter how small your small group is, no matter how little your equipping hour is, no matter how much small your prayer team is, keep going. Obedience in the small things. Choose obedience over quick success. Stay committed to holiness. Stay committed even if you don't see results. Strive for holiness also by being set apart from the world. In our men's class, we looked at the word holy not long ago, and I asked them, what's the definition of holy? Resounding, most men said, to be set apart. So if we're striving for holiness, we are to be set apart. Friends, we cannot reconcile a Christian lifestyle with that of an unbelieving lifestyle. An unbeliever will not choose to put Christ first. You cannot reconcile a Christian lifestyle with the world's lust for more things, more attention, more tweets, more likes, more money, more, more, more. For those of you that read the pilgrim's progress with us this year you see that theme throughout the book pilgrim and faithful and hopeful these guys they're walking down the the narrow way and at times people would join them that did not come into the lord's country through the wicked gate through the narrow way and always they end up parting ways and sometimes the ones that part well In the end, obviously, they're all disastrous, but oftentimes you get to see their disastrous end because they are not truly following the Lord. Friends, we just cannot walk hand in hand with the ways of the world. We have to avoid the ditches, though, of of, of, we neither build a compound in the woods, right? Like we don't like build our little Christian compound and live out in the woods, or pander to the culture. We just have to realize that we will never fit in with an unbelieving culture. Understanding that we are called to live in the world, but that we are not of the world. That we are to live lives that are set apart, that are different than our unbelieving neighbors. And be okay with that tension. Friends, pursue a holy life in an unholy culture. Because we are bound together in our calling as Christians. We have to work against disunity and we have to pursue holiness. Before Christ was crucified, he prayed for his followers in John 17, and he prayed that his Father would protect the unity of his bride. He prayed this I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. As you, Father, and me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe, you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are one. I am in them, they are in me, so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. John 17, 20-23. Christ prays that his bride would be united and one, just as he is one with the Father, and that the world would see a difference. Christ prays that not just his disciples would be one, not just that the Philippian church would be one, but that those who are saved by their word would be one. Friends, Christ prayed 2,000 years ago for us, that Whitecliff church would be one, just as he is one with his Father. He is in us and we in him. Friends, we are called to be unified because we are bound up together in Christ. May that mark us as a local church. Father, we love and adore and worship you. And we ask that you would make this church a unified church. May we walk holy lives before you, holy lives together. May we walk worthy of the calling you have given us, all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.